Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles to talk about this week. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, Popular Science notes that we have too many jellyfish, so scientists want to cover them in chocolate. All right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm open-minded. I'm not going to immediately <laughs> reject it. Is this just like for fun or for eating? <laughs> it's just for punishment. There's too many. Yeah. And so... <laughs> well, actually, yeah, you're both not wrong. Uh, we've got soaring jellyfish populations <laughs> that have been causing a lot of issues, notably in Europe. So in the Mediterranean, it costs a lot of coastal communities millions of euros in lost tourism revenue because they have to issue warnings like, you know, don't wade in too huh. deep into the water or put your heads underwater because they have, you know, thousands of stinging jellyfish in the waves. Or in Japan, fishermen often have to find their catch replaced by netfuls of jellyfish. And so instead of catching fish hmm. or getting jellyfish, even Sweden had to shut down one of its main power plants when thousands of jellyfish clogged its cooling pipes in 2011. Wow. So, oh, wow. yeah, big deal. They're causing a lot of havoc. And marine researchers are still not sure why we are having such an increase in jellyfish swarms. Some people are thinking maybe warming temperatures, ocean acidification, pollution, and overfishing might be to blame. But another issue is that jellyfish are highly adaptable, and they're very skilled at surviving in warm and polluted and acidified waters, which are conditions that kill many other fish. And so they may outcompete smaller fish, taking their place in the food web. Whatever the case is, uh, the article notes, these brainless clumps of jelly have proliferated. <laughs> so scientists are trying to make the best of a goopy situation and turn these creatures into a money-making commodity so people will want to hunt and sell them rather than just throw them back into the ocean. So recently, mm -hmm. a collaboration of marine researchers from eight different countries began a project called Go Jelly <laughs> to, <laughs> to create an array of jellyfish products, including water filters, fish feed, face cream, fertilizers, and food. Hmm. They also want to address microplastics pollution. So tiny particles of plastic, usually from cosmetics products, are too small to be removed by most sewage treatment facilities, and so they just end up in the ocean. So Go Jelly is developing a water filter made of jellyfish mucus that could capture Ooh. those particles during sewage treatment. The work is very novel, but it builds on prior research that shows how jellyfish mucus can remove nanoparticles, which are smaller than even microplastics. They're also experimenting with adding jellyfish to agricultural fields as fertilizers. Sometimes they grind them up into a sludge or mm. plop them down whole. <laughs> just drop them. <laughs> just drop them in the ground. And even in China, some scientists have attempted to feed farmed fish a mixture of jellyfish and standard fish food. And the results have so far been encouraging. Something in the jellyfish, and this is kind of an ominous statement, something in the jellyfish makes both fish and plants 
grow bigger faster what could hmm. possibly go wrong right <laughs> <laughs> yeah this feels like the beginning of like one of those cautionary tales mm -hmm. where everyone's hopped up on jellyfish goo yeah like yeah. stingers generally speaking are the thing that gets you high in the animal world like venom <laughs> in smaller quantities is usually a drug so mm -hmm. i don't know maybe they're getting jacked because they're just like <laughs> super energetic well, speaking of consumption, a group at the University of Denmark recently devised a way to make a jellyfish snack chip. And the way they do this is they dunk the jellyfish in ethanol and then leave it to air dry on a cookie sheet. <laughs> but so far, there still isn't much of a market for these gelatinous creatures. These are all sort of newer experiments in seeing how we can use this overpopulation of jellyfish. And there's also, of course, a cultural resistance hurdle, right? Mm -hmm. So some have described them like eating, quote, salty rubber bands. Mm, <laughs> tasty. It reminds me of tapioca boba. Yeah. Like it's the tea with the pearls in it. You could put little bits of jellyfish in my tea. I'd drink it. <laughs> <laughs> like a salted caramel frappuccino yeah. kind of thing. Well, and it sounds like we got to figure something out because if they're like the cockroaches of the sea where they're so exactly. adaptable that they're going to live through anything we do, we got to we gotta use them. Exactly. We need to start developing a taste for them. But, you know, this still doesn't address the root cause of why we have so many dang jellyfish. So the way mm. that jellyfish reproduce, any ideas on how they reproduce? Uh, grossly. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I kind of assume they just will themselves into existence. I'm not totally sure. Well, good news. You're both right. Uh, it's a gross kind of willing into existence here. Uh, they reproduce with stalk-like polyps on the seafloor. So harvesting ones that make it to the water surface might not change the intensity or frequency of all of these jellyfish blooms. But, you know, in the meantime, at least trying to figure out how to tap into this abundant resource has got to be better than just throwing it away. And harvesting some of them might reduce accumulations along the coast, at least temporarily, so people can swim without all these warnings of don't put your head in the water. <laughs> I still think, I think that we're going to find out the toxin is like a cure for cancer or something. We got like, there's got to be something in the stinging aspect that we can use. Yeah, especially if it's something that other animals use to get buzz. I mean, <laughs> we're, hey. we're due for a designer drug is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know, once this pandemic lifts, we'll be able to go, hey, man, hey, man, want to do some jelly? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. So we know that jellyfish are brainless, and so we don't have to feel so bad about eating them. But on the flip side, academictimes.com reports that octopuses can feel pain both physically and abstractly. Oh, so, like emotional pain? Yeah, something along those lines. You know, it's huh. kind of hard to tell exactly. But so essentially, researchers have determined that octopuses, the most neurologically complex invertebrates, both feel pain and remember it. So after experiencing a short burst of pain, octopuses showed a conditioned preference for locations where pain was relieved while avoiding the location where the pain occurred. Study author Robin Crook, an assistant professor of marine biology at San Francisco State University, says this is a highly complex ability to link a subjective feeling about their bodily state with a novel context and then remember and avoid that context later. And this is the first time that such an ability has been shown in cephalopods. Wow. Hmm. So invertebrates make up at least 97% of the animals on Earth. Crazy. I did not know that. That's a That's lot a of lot. spineless animals. Mm, yeah. yeah. But not much is known about their experience of pain. 
Octopuses and other cephalopods are extreme outliers among invertebrates due to their astounding brains. They're not only more intelligent than their invertebrate cousins, they demonstrate some of the same cognitive abilities as smaller vertebrates such as reptiles and amphibians. Mm -hmm. And Crook told the Academic Times, To be honest, I wasn't terribly surprised by the findings based on my years working with cephalopods. What I would say is that among the broader community of invertebrate researchers, there is a wide divergence of views on the question of pain. Crook and her team showed in a previous study that cephalopods have the required sensory neurons to experience and locate pain physically, known formally as the discriminatory component of pain. But what was missing was whether that pain can then shape the animal's state of mind, mood, or behaviors, also known as the affective component of pain. Mm. And while many animals showed an immediate reflexive response to pain, making the choice to avoid pain is a much more sophisticated cognitive skill. So to demonstrate the ability of octopuses to respond to pain, Crook set up conditioned place preference assays, a type of study in which researchers expose animals to a stimulus in a certain location, then measure the amount of time the animal spends in that location. For this study, eight octopuses received a small injection of acetic acid, which produced a sharp but harmless burst of pain similar to what we would experience if we were to get lemon juice into a paper cut according to Crook. Uh, sounds mean, but okay. Yeah. They were then <laughs> yeah, they were then placed into one chamber of a multi-chamber tank. Octopuses avoided the initial chamber when allowed to move around, indicating that they understood and remembered experiencing pain in that location. Octopuses also showed a strong preference for a chamber in which a researcher was waiting with an analgesic shot to relieve the pain, showing <gasps> that in addition to avoiding pain, octopuses are able to seek out sources of relief or wow. their dealers. Uh, my yeah. So we've basically <laughs> just proven they can have PTSD. Like we're yes. absolutely yeah. torturing these creatures. Yeah, that yeah. word came up in my mind too. This was scientific <laughs> torture. But to learn something that affirms my long-standing aversion to consuming octopus, like even when I was in Japan studying abroad, couldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm the same way. Octopus is one of the few foods I I won't eat because I think that it's quite possible they're smarter than us. And that's not a, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to be on the right side when the war right. comes. Is right, what I'm right, right, right. But do you yeah. think exactly. the jellyfish are going to side with the octopuses or with us? I mean, I feel like they're like foot soldiers. And... Yeah, I feel like they just go with whoever parties the hardest. Honestly. Right, right, right. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which very well could be octopus. Yeah, especially in their environment. I mean, jellyfish don't know how we party on land. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. That's very true. <laughs> They're like, can you prove you party? Anyway, okay, back on topic. Uh, <laughs> octopuses that didn't receive the initial burst of pain showed no location preferences. So that was, you know, the real censure here. The octopuses that received injections also groomed themselves around the injection site, demonstrating ongoing awareness of the irritation. And once the pain was relieved, the grooming stopped. The study involved inflicting a small amount of pain onto the animals, and they were euthanized at the conclusion of the study. Oh, Aww. come on. <laughs> That yeah. seems unnecessary. Clearly, it's because we know how smart they are, and we didn't want them warning all of their octopi brethren about the horrible oh, yeah. torture we were yeah. inflicting on them. They're very vengeful octopuses. They come That's after true. you. That's true. Yeah, we got to <laughs> keep them away from the internet. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, the British Psychological Society's Research Digest has an article called, It Turns Out You Can Kid a Kidder After All. Uh, I should note, I've taken a little editorial liberty on this one. The actual title of the article is You Can't BS a BSer, and the full version of that word appears about 50 times in the article. Mm. So, you know, 
<laughs> we try to keep it family friendly, so I've made some adjustments. But if for some reason you live in a world where you're still working out of an office and you know they monitor your internet browsing, you might want to wait till you get home to open this one up. <laughs> that being said, it really is a fascinating article that touches on one of my favorite subjects, lying. Mm. Because, you know, being a performer and a writer is basically just being a professional liar. And I don't know about you guys, but I've always found that I'm very good at it, even when I'm not getting paid to do it. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> I, I refuse to answer that question on the <laughs> right, air. Right, right. <laughs> so some earlier studies have suggested that better liars are also better at detecting lies. But a new mm. study out of the University of Waterloo in Canada has looked a little more closely into the specifics of that, and they found some surprising results. The interesting thing they did that other studies haven't before was they separated lying into two categories. There's persuasive lying, which is usually motivated by a desire to impress people, right? These are your big fish stories, your tall tales about that wild thing mm. that happened to you one time. Then there's evasive lying, which is meant to cover up a mistake or put a positive spin on something like a politician would. Mm -hmm. So participants in the study were first asked to complete a lying frequency scale, again, not called a lying frequency scale, <laughs> rating how likely they were to lie in different situations, including when the truth would hurt someone, but also things like when you want to contribute to a business meeting but don't actually understand the topic. Then they were presented with a long list of statements and asked to rate how profound each one was. One example of a genuinely profound statement was, a river cuts through a rock not because of its power, but its persistence. Which is, you know, a cute little thing you might see on a poster. While the pseudo-profound sentences were more like a nonsensical mash of buzzwords, like, we are in the midst of a high-frequency blossoming of interconnectedness that will give us access to the quantum soup itself. Which, Ooh. I can't imagine yeah. who's fooled by a sentence about the quantum soup, but I guess somebody is. I mean, I read my horoscope. I would read the rest of that article. <laughs> right? I read the business news. I'd read the rest of the article. <laughs> Well, what they found was that frequent evasive liars were significantly better than average at picking out the pseudo-profound sentences, while frequent persuasive liars were significantly worse at it. The frequent persuasive liars also did worse on basic cognitive tests like math and vocabulary and reported less insight into their own thoughts and feelings. Mm -hmm. They scored high in something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, meaning <sighs> the dumber they were, the smarter they thought they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. High evasive liars, on the other hand, were again at the opposite end of the scale, scoring higher than average on the intellectual as well as the self-awareness tests. So mm. basically, all liars think they're super smart, but only mm -hmm. half of them actually are. <laughs> and if you're wondering which category you fall into, the best way to figure it out is to look at what type of lies you usually tell. Mm. Yeah, so it's basically like the little fingers of society are smart. Right. And right. the braggadocious uh, Game of Thrones character who got his head crushed by that huge guy, uh, <laughs> yeah. not so smart. I mean, that cracks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, and it fits with what you feel like you know about the people around you, right? You're next to somebody who's always like, oh my God, they're crazy. And you're like, yeah, you're dumb. But there's <laughs> definitely manipulative people out there. We're like, oh, you're very clever. Like you, mm -hmm. you're, you're dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the authors did note it's important that they never tested how good any of these liars actually were at lying, just how often they said they did it. I actually, I took an entire class in college called Lying and Deception. 
And it was Whoa. fantastic. There's so much cool work on liars out there. Like we covered a ton of studies showing things like people with natural leadership skills also had the best lying skills because you have wow. to be able to frame something in the way that everybody wants to hear it for their own purposes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at one point, we actually had a guest lecture from a police officer who administers lie detector tests. And he basically told us, like, how people can beat them and all sorts mm -hmm. of fun stuff. It's really, really fascinating. What a great class, but a dangerous one to teach in college. Yeah, it was very weird. I don't know why <laughs> it was available for credit or otherwise, <laughs> but it was one of my favorite classes. I feel like when you study that sort of thing, you maybe get better at lying yourself, but you also do get better at knowing when you're being lied to. Right. And I mm -hmm. think that's a counteractive thing that can be very helpful, especially today. That yeah. was one oh, of yeah. the things they tested them on was like, how easily swayed were they by various fake news things? And of course, the braggadocious people were just like, yes, this is all true. And the evasive liars were like, no, nope, not buying any of it. So <laughs> as, as Wei said, I'm going to decline to answer on how often or in what situations I lie. But I, as the study shows, I do think I'm very good at it. So that tracks. That, <laughs> that makes sense. Next link. Next link. Well, a hidden Egyptian handbook has revealed even more secrets of mummification. Wow. Oh, we're getting better at it? We're going to be able to fully mummify things soon? Finally, we can do it. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? This may come back into fashion again, but yeah. um, there's an article on New Atlas that is letting us know that a 3,500-year-old Egyptian medical text is now shedding new light on the ancient practice of mummification. It was only recently discovered inside a much larger work, and the papyrus document being studied by University of Copenhagen is the oldest known mummification manual. Hmm. So we know some of the basics, right? It was a process that was partly practical and partly ritual. They purified the body, internal organs were removed. Most of us remember about the brain being extracted through the nose with a hook. That is one salient detail I will yeah, never is, unlearn. <laughs> is that true? Because that was always the detail that stuck with me too. I was like, how would you yeah. manage that? That seems... <laughs> impossible, but also really cool if they could do it. Yeah, this article is not poo-pooing that. It is including it as a thing that we know. Right. Yeah, and we knew mm -hmm. that they would store organs in special jars that were interred with the body. But there were still many details of the process that are not well known. This is because, like many crafts, knowledge was passed down orally through <laughs> apprenticeship. And on top of that, mummification was a sacred undertaking, and the priests were really guarded about their secrets. So until recently, there were two known manuals on mummification, but they were more like memory aids to ensure details were carried out properly, kind of like a cliff notes or something like that. Like, oh, you know, okay. Just... Yeah, a little bulleted list, but not actual <laughs> detailed instructions. Exactly. But this new Copenhagen study is based on a third mummification manual that's older than the previously known text by about a thousand years. And Whoa. it has way more details included about the process and it has recipes and how to use different types of bandages. And it also includes details on a new practice we've discovered, which is placing a piece of red linen over the deceased's face. Hmm. It sounds kind of like, meh, yeah, they put a piece of red linen over the face, but we now have a list of ingredients for a remedy that consisted largely of plant-based aromatic substances and binders that are cooked into a liquid with which the embalmers coat a piece of red linen. And then the red linen is then applied to the dead person's face in order to encase it in a protective cocoon of fragrant and antibacterial matter 
And they would repeat this at four-day intervals, I guess, to keep it quote-unquote fresh. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So this papyrus is scheduled to be published in 2022 by the Louvre Museum and the Papyrus Carlsberg Collection, which own the two halves of the document. <laughs> don't know how that happened, but at least they're working together. It's a shared custody situation. Yeah, they, you know, they failed Solomon's tests. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theconversation.com. It's titled, How Some People Can End Up Living at Airports for Months, Even Years at oh, a Time. Wow. Ooh, no thanks. So this this is more than just like that one movie that Tom Hanks was in or something. This is yeah, like although, a thing that happens a lot. Apparently, often enough to have a movie made about it because that movie is about one of these cases. It inspired oh, like a, is a true story. Okay. The movie. Yeah, yeah. So uh, after more than two decades studying the history of airports, the author came across stories about individuals who have managed to take up residence in terminals for weeks, months, and sometimes years. In January, local authorities arrested a 36-year-old man named Aditya Singh after he had spent three months living at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport. Since October, he'd been staying in the secure side of the airport, relying on the kindness of strangers to buy him food, sleeping in the terminals, and using the many bathroom facilities. It wasn't until an airport employee asked to see his ID that the jig was up. Of course, not all those who find themselves sleeping in a terminal necessarily want to be there. There are those who unwittingly find themselves in a extended indefinite stay, and perhaps the most famous involuntary long-term airport resident was Miran Karimi Nasseri, whose story reportedly inspired the movie The Terminal, starring Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. So, that's them. <laughs> Nasseri, an Iranian refugee, was en route to England via Belgium and France in 1988 when he lost the papers that verified his refugee status. And Ooh. without his papers, he could not board his plane for England, mm. nor was he permitted to leave the Paris airport and enter France. And he soon became an international hot potato as his case bounced back and forth among officials in England, France, and Belgium. At one point, French authorities offered to allow him residence in France, but he turned down the offer, reportedly because he wanted to get to his original destination, England. And so he stayed at the Charles de Gaulle airport for nearly 18 years. Whoa. And he only left in 2006 when his declining health required hospitalization. Aww. Yeah, really, like... Kind of pushed his luck, in my opinion. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's... I mean, 18 years in the airport doesn't sound better than France. Yeah, Correct. I know, right. Like, I get that he didn't initially want to live in France, but after a while, you got to say, okay, fine, I'll take France. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, no matter how much you dislike the French lifestyle, I guess, <laughs> like, or really love the English lifestyle, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's too long for me, at least. Uh, so other long-term airport residents include Edward Snowden, the NSA leaker, who spent mm -hmm. more than a month in a Russian airport in 2013 before receiving asylum. And then there's the saga of Sanjay Shah. Uh, Shah had traveled to England in May 2004 on a British overseas citizen passport, but immigration officials refused him entry when it was clear he intended to immigrate to England, not merely stay there for a few months that his passport allowed. Mm -hmm. So sent back to Kenya, he feared leaving the airport as he'd already surrendered his Kenyan citizenship. And he was finally able to leave after an airport residency of just over a year when British officials granted him full citizenship. So I guess there is a certain amount of just be stubborn enough and then you get to live in a country somewhere. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> that that's a common through line or not in some of these stories. So most recently, the coronavirus pandemic has created new long-term involuntary airport residents. For example, an Estonian named Roman Trofimov arrived at Manila International Airport on a flight from Bangkok on March 20th, 2020. And by the time of his arrival, Philippine authorities had ceased issuing entry visas to limit the spread of COVID-19. And he spent over 100 days in the Manila airport until personnel at the Estonian embassy were finally able to get him a seat on a repatriation flight. Not quite the same thing, but it makes me think of all the people who were stuck on cruise ships Mm -hmm. uh, during Mm -hmm. the initial outbreak. And yeah, these situations are kind of my personal worst nightmare. (laughs) I guess there's worse nightmares you could have, right? Probably. Yeah. (laughs) So while most involuntary airport residents long to leave their temporary home, there are some who have voluntarily attempted to make an airport their long-term abode. Major airports in both the United States and Europe have long functioned, though largely informally, as homeless shelters. Though homelessness and the homeless have a long history in the U.S., many analysts see the 1980s as an important turning point in that history, as many factors, including federal budget cuts, the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill, and gentrification led to a sharp rise in the number of homeless. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's in that decade that you can find the earliest stories about the homeless living at U.S. airports. For example, in 1986, the Chicago Tribune wrote about Fred Dilsner, a 44-year-old former accountant who'd been living at O'Hare in Chicago for a year. And the article indicated that homeless individuals had first started showing up at the airport in 1984, following the completion of the Chicago Transit Authority train link, which provided cheap and easy access. And the newspaper also reported that 30 to 50 people were living at the airport, but that officials expected the number could climb to 200 as the winter weather set in. Yeah, I mean, it does have to be a little harder these days. You have to at least buy a ticket to get to the main part of any airport almost nowadays. Yeah. To get through security, you have to be able to show, I have a ticket, I have ID. So you're talking more about, like, recently homeless, not necessarily someone who's been on the streets for 10 years and decides, oh, now I'm going to move into the airport. Mm. Yeah, I imagine so, especially because airports are expensive, you Mm -hmm. know? I mean, even if you're begging for food or finding scraps or leftovers and things like that. It costs twice as much more. Yeah. Yeah, like during the day might not be so bad, but like where do you sleep? None of those chairs are comfortable. The lights don't go out either. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think it seems like a good idea. I'm against it. I agree. I'm going to try to avoid that experience personally. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Passant Rabier at Inverse.com has an article titled, NASA sent thousands of worms to space to solve a major problem. So on February 20th, NASA sent a Cygnus resupply spacecraft to the ISS, packed with 8,000 pounds of science experiments and other resupply cargo for the astronauts. One of the more interesting items on the list was a package containing 120,000 worms. What? Yeah. (laughs) They're a type of nematode or roundworm species called Kynorhabditis elegans, which are considered by many researchers to be the ultimate animal model, even more so than white mice. They're one of the most studied creatures on the planet and are a surprisingly close analog for the biological processes of more complex organisms like humans. In this particular case, they're up there to study muscle wasting. It's a problem, I think, that most people are aware of, and it makes sense. You know, when you're in low gravity, you inevitably start to lose bone and muscle mass. And that's why it's so important for astronauts to exercise while they're up there. Yeah. But the confusing thing for scientists is that over the 60 years that the ISS has been in orbit, we've pretty conclusively shown that no matter how much they exercise, it's not enough. Even with a strict routine of workouts and an extra nutritious diet, 
astronauts are still coming back with less muscle and bone in direct correlation to how long they've been up there. So these worms are a step forward in trying to figure out what exactly is happening on a molecular level. Obviously, they don't have bones, so you can only look at what happens to their muscle tissue. And more importantly, how do you test a worm's strength? You can't give it a tiny yeah. little kettlebell and say, give me 20 reps. <laughs> Aw, but I'd like to see it. Yeah, it would be adorable. Give him a little, like, muscle tank top, let him get a Tiny buff. little headband. Yeah, aw. <laughs> <laughs> so study author Nathaniel, I'm going to say Sevzik. It's one of those Polish names with a bunch of C's and Z's, so I apologize. I'm probably getting it wrong. But he came up with a neat little tool to measure the worm's strength over time. It's basically a hollow panel about the size of an 8-track tape, which for you youngins out there is about halfway between a VHS tape and a cassette tape, which for you even younger youngins <laughs> is like a slightly larger iPhone. And inside this panel are a bunch of very soft, very sensitive pegs that the worms have to shove their way through like an obstacle course. And as they pass through, a microscopic camera measures how much each pillar bends which they say is a reflection of how hard the worms are able to push against them to get where they're trying to go. And once they're back on Earth, Sevzik says there will be more tests done, which I think is code for cutting them up, to see <laughs> what has happened to them on a molecular level, in particular looking at a protein called myosin, which Sevzik suspects is the culprit in the muscle-wasting issue. He says there are a lot of correlations between worm myosin and human myosin, but he also acknowledged that, quote, it's also entirely true that there's lots of people who think that that's crazy talk. So <laughs> I guess it's a little more controversial what you send up to the ISS. Like there's actual arguments going on about should we send 120,000 worms or should we not? I kind of <laughs> thought that stuff was agreed upon. But maybe, you know, there's people vying for whose experiment gets on board. I don't know. Yeah, it makes me wonder... How many worms do you really need for a study like this? Right. Is 120,000 like, <laughs> the right number? <laughs> yeah. Like, couldn't you send all... I feel like you could fit a thousand worms into one decently sized box. Right. And that's a lot of worms. Yeah. I mean, they, but... were, they are very, very tiny. Or maybe it's like humans where you've got some jocks and you've got some nerds and you need to, like, get that spread. That's true. I mean, we should really just set them up with like a little high school diorama and then build the experiment into that. You know, there's a gym. That's right. That they can use. That's right. Okay. All right. I'm done thinking about this. I apologize. We should do social experiments on them at the same time. Like say yes. how they feel pain. We should torture them in the middle of the obstacle course is what you're saying. Yes. I bet there's a correlation between socialization, muscle mass, and sensitivity to pain as it relates to the duration of time spent in space. I'm, I'm with you. I'd find that experiment yeah, for yeah. sure we're ready to do science <laughs> next link next link all right cnn style has reported that a rare locked letter that was sealed 300 years ago has finally been opened virtually Ooh. oh so 300 years ago, before we had envelopes, before we had passwords, there were a lot of attempts to make letters private. And one popular way was to use a technique called letter locking, which was an origami-like intricately folded flat sheet of paper that essentially became its own envelope. Hmm. 577 locked letters were delivered to The Hague in the Netherlands between 1689 and 1706 and were found in a trunk of undelivered mail. So these letters had never reached their final recipients and conservators did not want to open and damage them. So instead, a team has found a way to read one of the letters without breaking the seal in any way. 
What they did was use a highly sensitive x-ray scanner and computer algorithms to virtually unfold the unopened letter. The letter itself is just kind of meh. It was a request from a French guy to his cousin. But the researchers say that the letter gives fascinating insight into the lives of ordinary people. So kind of a snapshot of the early modern world as it went about its business. Hmm. The trunk of correspondence belonged to a postmaster called Simon de Brienne and his wife, postmistress Marie Germain. It was acquired by the Museum Vour Communicati in The Hague in 1926. So in addition to the unopened letters, it contains 2,571 opened letters and fragments that for one reason or another never reached their destination. I think that for one reason over another is a really kind way of saying someone stole the letters. Yeah. (laughs) If a bunch of unopened letters are in the possession of a postmaster, it sounds like he's bad at his job. Like, he's not supposed to be holding (laughs) these things. But these x-ray scanners were originally designed to map the mineral content of teeth, of all things, and they were mostly used in dental Hmm. research until now. So the scanning technology, it's similar to medical CT scanners, but uses much more intense x-rays. And one tantalizing application could be to virtually unfold sealed items and letters in the Prize Papers, which is an archive of documents confiscated by the British from enemy ships between the 17th and 19th centuries. So they have all these other letters sitting around that they think they could now apply this to that might have more information than just, hey, how are you? The weather's fine. (laughs) Right. Maybe war correspondence because it was taken from enemy ships, um, exploration intent. And if you go to your dentist and you have a letter hidden inside your mouth, they can read it while you're also getting your teeth x-rays. Like two birds with one stone. I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from popularmechanics.com and it's titled Scientists Want to Destroy Zombie Satellites with Lasers. What could go wrong? <laughs> nothing. Nothing ever goes yeah. wrong with lasers. They're the best. Nope. And you know that when an oracle asks this question, the answer is nothing. Right, right. Uh, so <laughs> there are approximately 23,000 pieces of space debris larger than 10 centimeters orbiting Earth, including about 3,000 defunct satellites, mm-hmm. according to NASA's Orbital Debris Program Office, or ODPO. But a common cancer treatment may turn that troublesome space junk into harmless clouds of plasma, Russian scientists say. Laser ablation, the process of removing metals from a solid surface by irradiating it with a laser beam, can destroy malignant tumors in the human body. It could also obliterate dead satellites. So it might seem like we can simply point lasers from the ground into space to zap useless satellites, but all satellites are different and carry various risks. The solar cells that satellites use for power, for example, could be potentially dangerous. If a laser pings the surface of a solar array, it could eject thousands of shards of glass, creating a cloud of microscopic debris. Yeah, we could make it way worse. Yeah, exactly. But a space-borne laser could get around some of these risks. Uh, Researchers from Bauman Moscow State Technical University say in a new study in Acta Astronautica, lasers originating from Earth are subject to atmospheric interference that can decrease the beam's point accuracy. Space-based lasers, though, could more precisely target satellites while avoiding solar arrays, and they'd also require less energy. So the question is, you know, why do we hate space junk so much? Uh, Consider this. So many (laughs) objects in space are extremely fragile, so bumping into even a tiny piece of debris could rip into the sides of functional satellites or even cause explosions. Mm -hmm. That not only damages the satellites, but also sprays a bunch of micro space junk into orbit. 
the ISS has conducted at least 27 collision avoidance maneuvers since 1999, according to Orbital Debris Quarterly News, a publication <laughs> of NASA's Odpo. Yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, if you're really curious about space junk, you can just pick up a copy of Debris Quarterly and uh, you're good to go. <laughs> I mean, I think the obvious conclusion from this, though, is like governments are going to put giant lasers in space. That I mean, is is nobody questioning how yeah. this might be an ulterior military defensive thing that they're just like, oh no, we're gonna we're gonna zap satellites. That's what we're gonna do. With it's it. it's for the environment. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, since it takes precious and expensive fuel to fire up the eight thrusters on the ISS's attached cargo ship, Progress, to complete a maneuver, there's a financial incentive to eliminate space junk as well. Mm -hmm. But while the Russian scientists' new process of zapping space junk sounds promising, not all experts are convinced it's necessary, and not just because of the potential for giant death lasers in space. Right! Uh, <laughs> yeah, Alice Gorman, PhD, a space archaeologist and associate professor at Flinders University in Adelaide, South Australia, says there's definitely stuff up there that has cultural value, and obviously I don't want someone to point lasers at them. Although Gorman studies space junk, she says the term undercuts the potential for the debris to one day have a purpose again, and some zombie satellites could come back online in the future as they have in the past. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it seems to me like the danger of these things floating around outstrips any potential. Like, hey, we could reuse that. Like, that just feels like a hoarding tendency among <laughs> astronauts. Where yeah, it's like, no, yeah. just, you know, does does this dead satellite bring me joy? No, we need to zap it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Do we need 1,000 worms? Right. That's true, yeah. <laughs> if we can just bioengineer the worms to eat space junk, mm -hmm. then we're good mm -hmm. to go. Except then we're going to have mm -hmm. a jellyfish problem where there's too many worms in space, and we're going to have to question, <laughs> what do we do with all these worms? Do we dip them in chocolate? Do we yeah. make face creams out of them? You know? Do we inject them with acetic acid? acid? To, I mean, you to know, see yeah. if they feel pain? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include what happens when you turn a psychopath into a therapist, a hundred million year old seafloor sediment bacteria have been resuscitated, and there's no real reason to eat three meals a day. As always, if you would like to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at feedback at di.show. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.